Well, that's uh, Four Corners India, and I wanted to take a moment and let you know how grateful we are that we have been able to partner together with them. I have only spoken on the phone once with Pastor James John. It was actually um, when we first began the relationship a couple years back. And at that point, he was just a struggling pastor in a very small section of that property with a very small circle of influence. But the church that we have built, uh, paid for them to build, actually, is the more technical way to say it. The church that we paid for them to build has now become a regional center of ministry. Um, where they literally have dozens of ministers going out into, he calls it like the bush country, where there are uh, tigers and elephants, really, there are. And uh, they go out throughout the, uh, the villages um, in that area in Kerala, and um, they do the ministry of, well, what James says, pure religion is this, that we care for the fatherless, the orphan, and the widow. And uh, that's what they do, and we've been able to partner with them. And even though we're in the middle of this massive church project ourselves, building our own kind of permanent home and base of ministry. And we didn't want this Christmas to pass without making at least a token contribution back to Pastor James John. So what you saw is a church. You saw orphanage. We've, we're heavily vested in both of those places. And this year what they're tackling is, and I'm going to use the words he used, an old lady's home. I, I didn't say that. That's what he said. They're building an old lady's home um, for widows. Um, now, here, here's the deal. Their country doesn't quite have the safety net that ours has. And, you know, we can debate all day long about whether ours is sufficient or not. But in India, there's virtually none. And so they're literally our disposable people. The reason this orphanage is all for girls, they, young girls without parents have the roughest go in India uh, of, of anybody on the socioeconomic uh, ladder, maybe with the exception of old ladies who are, who are widowed. And so Pastor James and his ministry crew decided they would go for the least of these, as Jesus uh, talked about. And when they did, man, God has just blessed him. Uh, our relationship began because of an Operation Christmas Child shoebox that was sent with a $5 check. And for some reason, the organization that runs that shoebox ministry forgot to take the check out. And the shoebox and the check made its way all, to, all the way to India. And on that check was the name and address of the person who sent that shoebox. It landed in Kerala, India at, to one of the girls at that orphanage. Very rudimentary organization at that point. And Pastor James got in contact with the person whose name and address was on that church. That church, uh, that, that person goes to this church he has a burning passion. His, they call him in the video, um, Daddy Charlie. Um, I refuse to call him that. I just call him Charlie. Uh, they call me, um, you know, Pastor Ben, and the rest of the staff they call brother, kind of keeping with that, well, with that biblical theme that we're all family. And they call Charlie dad and, and, and his wife mom because they have basically um, adopted them as their parents. Um, and our church has partnered with them. It kind of grew out of a movement within our church. And in a moment, I'm going to, when we get to the end of our time today, just tell you the, the, the tangible thing that we're going to try to do on Christmas Eve Eve at that one service to really give them a blessing. Now, before I jump into the, the message in, in earnest today, although I'm hoping that was edifying to you, I want to tell you that I'm really glad we live in New Testament times. Here's why. In the Old Testament, there's a passage that says if a prophet predicts something under the guise of doing the Lord's work and it doesn't come to pass, then you stone him. Um, <laughs> I am really glad that grace is alive and well at Four Corners Church. Um, he, he, here's what happened. 
Um, we've had a, a very good, um, for the most part, relationship with the, uh, the county officials, the county engineer's office and building inspector. Um, we've, we've had a few hurdles, I guess, as all buildings of our size and scope do, but the relationships are, are pretty positive. And when the inspector came, we had hoped in the middle of the week, he delayed until Friday, um, which is not what our wish was. We had hoped we'd have a little bit of time to rebound. Um, when he came on Friday at his own discretion, what he discovered was something that was frustrating to him. Uh, we have three air conditioners in our auditorium, and each one of them have a smoke detector on them, and so that if it, if it, uh, if it identifies smoke in the room, it kicks off the air conditioner so it doesn't circulate smoke throughout the room. Those three air conditioners are supposed to be tied together so that if one kicks off, they all kick off. It makes perfect sense. Um, our engineer didn't catch it. Um, we, we didn't catch it. Our HVAC installer did not catch it. Somehow that went unnoticed. And when the, um, when the inspector came in, he saw that. And for that and a handful of other reasons, uh, he decided to not give us our occupancy permit. He wouldn't let us have a special occupancy permit for one week with the repair. And he wouldn't let us do what is called a fire watch, where we hire a fireman and, and keep them on site in case there's a problem. And so we did all we could. I offered to hug and kiss him. He said that, 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 that he was going to push us back another month just for the offer. No, I'm kidding. Um, I, I offered all I could. I had the guys in the back room praying. Um, but for that, and, and just honestly, there are a handful of other reasons um, that all but, uh, but two are completely resolved. The others will be resolved on Tuesday. We're scheduled for Wednesday. We anticipate no problems. I now have a known commodity, a relatively short list of exactly what he wants to see. And again, we're checking through those. There's only, only two left. So here we are in the middle of the, of the Christmas season, and I get really excited about Christmas. I get excited about Christmas for a couple of reasons. One, every Christmas, my dad would save up his vacation through the year, and at Christmas time, he'd take a lot of time off. So in my family home, it was a lot of time of kind of family being together. We were not very wealthy growing up at, at all. In fact, I, we were typically, you know, on, on the lower edge, and all my friends got, like, you know, newer and better gifts than I did, and I was, became aware of that when I was in my teen years. But one thing that I had that they didn't have is I had the time with my parents and my siblings and my friends, and we hung out together, and we played games. We typically would do Monopoly. Somebody would always end up crying. But those are very fond memories for me. I love Christmas I did not know, and I think my parents kind of stumbled upon it, that, that, that the Christmas season is extra special. Now, as a kid, it was extra special because I got gifts, because we had this family time. We engaged my dad. The food was incredible. We had a lot of laughter in our home and just time together. And all of that kind of prompted me to really dig into what Christmas is all about. Now, the Christmas story in your Bible is found in the ways we typically hear it in two of the four books of your Bible called Gospels. In Matthew and Luke, the traditional Christmas story is told. Now, there are two other Gospels. There's Mark and John. And John kind of takes the philosophical look at the beginning of the story of Jesus. And he talks about how Jesus existed in heaven with God, that he was there at the very beginning. And he came down to this earth to bring light. So he doesn't tell the story of the wise men or the shepherds or the angels' visit to Mary. If you want to read those stories, that's found in Matthew and Luke, and we'll do that beginning next week. So John tells it slightly different, and Mark gives us one sentence that I thought would be an incredible close to our future family series, because it gets to the heart of what Christmas is all about. A lot of folks will take some extra time, eat some good food, buy some gifts, and probably do some good work for Orphans and the fatherless and widows and people who are struggling and displaced. But did you know that millions of people around the world 
literally millions of people around the world will not just do those things. They will focus on the core of the core. The thing that as a child I couldn't fully grasp, although I had hints of it, I was fully prepped to understand it. Something that I began to understand, honestly, when I was in my teen years at about 17, and I, I began to make that informed decision for myself to begin to follow Jesus. The religion that my family brought into our home became less of my parents' religion and became more of the thing I chose to do as my own becoming adult person. It's a thing that from about 17 now till 32, 44, <laughs> it, became, it has become the thing that I am still learning to unwrap that gift that keeps on giving. And Mark begins this story with the beautiful sentence there in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, one of the four books of your Bible that tells the story of Jesus. And here's how Mark begins it. I like this simple sentence. He says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's his entire Christmas story. Then he jumps right into the story of John the Baptist, and he kicks off with Jesus going into the wilderness and doing miracles. But in one sentence, he encapsulates the beauty and the gift that is Christmas. And it's really found, I think, in the first few words, the beginning of the good news. Now, here's what's interesting. Mark was writing to an audience that had some familiarity with the Bible story, going all the way back to the book of Genesis. The Bible isn't one book. It's 66 different pieces of ancient literature penned by some 40 different authors from various perspectives over a couple thousand years, writing the story of God's interaction in this world. It is still the best-selling book of all time. Every educated person who really wants to consider themselves educated, whether they believe it or not, if you really want to be among the educated historically, become familiar with this book. Its influence is huge. It is global. It is multi-generational. And there's no sign that the gospel's influence around the world is declining, no matter what we might think we're seeing here in the United States. The Bible story is profound. And way back in Genesis, it begins beautifully. There was a God who is by nature love, and love demands an object to display that love too. Jesus said it this way, that if you say you love God but don't love your brother, then your religion is missing something. People writing about the teachings of Jesus, particularly John, continues that stream of thought, and he begins to say that if we say we have love for one another but we don't actually show the love, then again, there's a challenge. Jesus lived out in person this story of love that God was writing with his creation. Where love demanded an object, so man and woman were created, and there was this harmony between God and his created order. And the Bible describes it in a beautiful sentence. That God would come down and talk to people in the cool of the day face to face, with no barrier or separation between the creator and the created. So that the entire value and worth of the created order that was bestowed upon it by its creator was lived out in those moments of communication. They were seen as valued and they felt valued and worthful and purposeful. 
And then Genesis chapter 3, just two pages into your Bible happens, where there is a spiritual and a cosmic shift, a transition. And the bad news of the story begins. They say every good story has conflict. There's a villain. And the conflict begins. And that intimate bond between creator and created is separated. And the entire story of the Old Testament is about God establishing a person and then a people and then a nation from which he's going to bless the entire world. And out of that group of people, he's going to establish a way for everybody to reconnect with him. The bad news was there was separation. The good news happens at Christmas. And Mark encapsulates the good news in the sentence that it is the beginning of the good news. And we're going to talk about Christmas and its implications over the next couple weeks. And on Christmas Eve, Eve, we have an incredible incredible service planned for you, your kids, your family, your friends. You don't want to miss it. If you've been to our other Christmas Eve Eve services, you know that it's, it's a spectacular event. And for me and my family, it is the moment when we kind of release everything else and we kick into the Christmas season all the way. It is phenomenal. But this year is extra special. And we're going to help people understand you if you come, your family. We're going to help you understand just how powerful this Christmas story is. And one of the primary points I'm going to be making is the one I'm making today. Give you a preview so that you'll be extra motivated to invite your family and friends to Christmas Eve Eve. That Christmas isn't simply an event that happened in the past. Something that we reflect on with fondness, kind of like watching home videos of your kids now that they're older and you look back and you long for those more innocent times or those times when they were little. It's not like that at all. It literally is the gift that continues to give. Christmas literally wasn't the story of the good news. It was the beginning of the story of good news that continues to this very day. Now, in this amazing Christmas story, there are a few powerful interactions and a few things that kind of rise to the top of the waters and float on the surface so that we can grab hold of them quickly. One of those powerful movements inside the Christmas story, the beginning of the good news, is the way that God re-engaged people. He showed up to lowly shepherds and announced the greatest news this universe had heard in hundreds, in thousands of years, that a Savior was born just, just over the hills. That a Savior was born, and to the lowest of the low they go. He announced to the highest of the high, the magi, the wise men, and they travel great distance to see. And to a, a young girl, the lowest in her society, unmarried but betrothed, promised. And to a carpenter, skilled but not really high on the socioeconomic scale, each of them have an encounter with God. The angels come and begin to deliver the message. Get ready, it's about to begin. Get ready, it's about to begin. The, the message always begins this way. Don't be afraid. I bring you glad tidings, good news. The story is taking a turn for the better. It's been difficult, it's been tough, but it's about to turn. God is about to re-engage people in a special way, and you get to be the recipients of that. One of those people that were engaged was Mary, the person blessed to carry the Savior of the world. And the angel shows up to her and says, you are highly favored among all the women because you've been chosen. 
Not because of anything she had done. We know very little about her life. Because God was in his grace beginning to dispense upon people the impact of the good news. This is what Christmas is about. That people would once again be favored by God. That there wouldn't just be a concept that God was just and good and moral and loving if you followed him. But more than that, despite what you do or your heritage or what society says about you or your educational level, God was going to bring good news available to every human being. That he would no longer simply be the God up there that set the rules in place and you better follow them. He would now be the God that would love us knowing that we were breaking the rules. The biblical writers say it this way, that while we were yet sinning, Christ came to this earth and died for us. You're highly favored. Let me ask you a simple question. What if at the beginning, maybe you're halfway through your Christmas season, but what if here at the beginning of really ramping up for Christmas, what if you fully grabbed hold of the truth that you are favored by God? What if God spoke to you personally and said, fear not, my favor rests on you? What beginning could that begin for you? If you really believed deep down that the creator of the universe looked at you and said, I favor you, not in some competitive sense of somebody else isn't favored because you are. That's how my kids feel. They're always like, dad, who do you love the best? And one by one, I tell them, each one, you're my favorite son, but don't tell your brothers. That's what I tell them. Not in some competitive sense, and not at all, but in the sense that out of all of creation, you are special and valued, that you have purpose and meaning. What if this Christmas season, in the middle of all the other stuff we had to do, we grabbed hold of that truth, that you are favored, that I am and favored, that this world is favored by God. And he says to us each, fear not. I wonder what difference that would make next year for you if in the next few weeks you grabbed hold of that. I wonder what difference it would make in your family if you really grabbed hold of a biblical understanding of what it was to be favored by God. When the words Merry Christmas simply weren't a slogan of the season, they became the mantra of your heart that it is good, it is merry, it is joyful because I am one of the favored. The angels say to the shepherds that not only is a baby being born, but there is glad tidings unto you is how the passage goes. The plural, you, unto you has been born a Savior. You and I, we are favored people. And this Christmas, I think what God would like to do is remind us of that, not in a way to make us some kind of arrogant, spoiled child getting everything we want, demanding from our parents what we think we need from our limited wisdom perspective, And having our parents give them to us as if they're somehow relegated to the role of provider and happy maker as opposed to parent and guardian. Not in that silly American Christmas kind of way. But in the sense that we have a heavenly father who loves us completely. What if your family and mine grabbed hold of the fact that we are favored by God? It's one of the thoughts 
that I've been having over this holiday season as we've ramped up for our new building, as, as we're ramping up in my family for Christmas, as I'm trying to grab hold of the heritage that was beautifully gifted to me by my parents and trying to bring some of that forward into my family, or for some of you trying to let go of the damage that was done to you by your family and do something different and special for yours. For some of you, it's doing something different and special for your grandkids or your nieces and your nephews. What if, what if we really grabbed hold of the fact that we are favored and this Christmas season isn't the entirety of the good news, it is simply the beginning of the story. What if, what if God isn't done with you? What could that mean? What would that mean beginning this holiday season? That's one of the big picture items that I'm thinking about. I have another question that we're wrestling with in my house. My boys are at that stage where they're starting to notice the disparity between what people have. Cars, houses, clothes, that kind of thing. And it makes for some very interesting discussions. I'm about to turn off the television in our house because as the commercials have ramped up, my kids are like, I want that. No, I want that. No, I want that. And now let me tell you, they are fully in, uh, uh, you know, involved in the culture because they've told me, don't buy me any gifts, Dad. Just give me money. <laughs> Sounds good. By the way, if you're wanting to give the staff and I Christmas gifts this season, just give us money. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I don't know where my kids get that. that I, they, I don't know. Uh, but here's the deal. We're, we're, we're starting to wrestle with this stuff, and we, we do it every year. Here's, I want my kids to look at their parents and say, hey, I'm favored. I'm going to get some stuff. Absolutely. And Jill and I take great joy, and we put a lot of effort into buying gifts that are meaningful and enjoyable to our kids. But we don't want them caught up in believing that the greatest is that they get to have stuff. We don't want that for them. We're trying to elevate the thing, to, to stretch them into that place so that when they get old enough, they can grab hold of what Christmas is really about. And we believe, we're afraid that if they grab hold of the truth that our culture preaches, it's about stuff that they'll miss what's really important. So we say it a variety of different ways, but one of the things that we're talking about is what if we spent less time worrying about getting rich and, 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 and acquiring and what if we spent more time thinking about what it looks like to be rich in the biblical sense? Do you know that the Bible said that God is rich in mercy, so he bestows, he gives to us mercy? And whenever the Bible talks about the riches of God's glory, it's the idea that he has such an abundance that it gets radiated onto his people. It doesn't just hold to himself alone. And when the Bible talks about richness in the Bible, uh, either in terms of money or in terms of emotional basket being full or some spiritual quotient being full, full of the Spirit, when it talks about the richness of God, connected to that richness, there's always this healthy thing that if I've been given, I give back. That the way to be rich, no matter what you have, is to give back. That in the Bible, that just, it's an obvious, non-debatable truth that the folks who are bestowed with much give back to those that don't have. That the abundance I have, it gets radiated. And I take joy, part of the joy of being rich is I take joy in dispensing to others some of what's been given to me. So the Bible takes great pains to bless and to laud upon those who do that and to caution and warn those that don't. So 
in the writings of Paul as he's trying to live out the teachings of Jesus immediately after Jesus has died and gone to heaven. And he's trying to figure out what does it look like to be a Christian in this world when Jesus isn't physically present. He tells one of the church leaders, he says, be cautious to warn rich people this. Don't spend your money just on yourself. And so Jill and I are trying to figure out what does that look like in our family? Because if you ask my kids, we're not rich. You know who's rich? The guy down the street that just bought a Porsche that keeps driving in front of my house, making my kids just stop and stare. I have to go shake them. It's like, the, I don't know what that is. That, that's what my kids think. And Jill and I are going out of our way to communicate to them, look, that's one type of rich. And on the scale of all things rich, that's really the lowest rung. That there is a way of talking about being rich that is wildly better than that. And in fact, you, my sons, my daughter, my house, we are rich. We have some stuff, but we have a lot more. And out of the abundance we've been given, we can give back. And we're trying to shift the conversation in our house from what does it look like to get richer to what does it look like to live rich. It's making a difference in our family. My father called me this week and he said, when I was with you guys last week, I gave each of the grandkids five bucks. And then a few days later, I asked him what they did with the money. And he was talking to my youngest son, John. And these are one of those moments as a parent that you really latch on to. I won't tell you the bad stories. This is a good one, all right? He calls my son, John, and he says, what'd you do with your five dollars? And John says, I gave it to the church. And so my dad says, why did you do that? He said, because I want us to get into our new home. I'm excited about our new church. Now, this is my nine-year-old. And so Jill and I just held hands, did a happy dance. Because... <laughs> We don't get a whole lot of those at this age, but it's beginning to break through. I don't suspect that he'll give everything, but I hope my son learns that if God blesses him with stuff, he'll give some of it back. What difference would it look like if in your family we defined being rich, not just by what we have economically, monetarily. What if we defined it in the ways that the Bible did? Rich in mercy rich in good deeds. Command those that are rich in this world to not be rich simply in money, but to be rich in good deeds, it says in Timothy. Command. <laughs> That's an interesting word. Paul, Paul was writing to Timothy, a preacher, and he was telling him, I want you to command your audience. Man, it wouldn't be that Timothy was the commander. He's more of the delivering of the command coming from God. God looks at his kids and he says, look, I'm going to bless you with stuff. Some of you with time, some of you with talent, some of you with, with money, some of you with emotional capacity to hear things and to help people feel valued and appreciated. Out of that abundance of mercy that I've given you and grace I've bestowed to you and forgiveness I've given you, out of that, be rich. Give some of that back. There's no better time to talk about this than at the holiday season. We had a conversation with one of my sons this week who two Christmases ago had the worst day of his life, he says. He told us he asked for an airsoft rifle, and instead, this is what he said yesterday, we gave him socks. That's how he remembers it. It is etched in his memory. I, I remember, that happened just yesterday. I'm not exaggerating for the point of preaching. That happens sometimes, not by me, but by other pastors. Um, <laughs> he said that in his mind, he asked for this airsoft gun, and we gave him socks. I remember this day. He had said he wanted several things. 
We bought him a few of the things he wanted. Jill and I took great joy in that. And on Christmas morning, we thought he would open it and, and you know, his little eyes would shine. He'd look at us and he would say something like, Mom, Dad, you're the best. But he didn't. He's at that young stage where the emotions tend to just bubble up unfiltered. In some regards, it's beautiful, except sometimes the emotions are kind of ugly, as is the case here. And with tears in his eyes, he said, is that all the presents? Now, we give him a bye because he's young. But wouldn't it be a tragedy if I let that kind of thing continue to run unchecked? It's my job as a parent and, and as a pastor to take, and yours as a community person, a person who has friends and family, some of you are parents, aunts, uncles, cousins, to lean in at those moments in gentle ways, understanding the development of people, but at the same time, gently pulling them towards really where the real source of joy is. And we do that by identifying our richness, not simply in terms of money, but in terms of what God has blessed us. What if we spent less time worrying about getting rich and more time and energy being rich? And there's no way we've been more richly blessed than with the gospel. Mark says this is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus the Messiah. Many of you in this room, you put your faith and trust in Jesus. You had your questions, you had your doubt, but at some point in your life's journey, you became convinced that Jesus was worth it. And you said, look, I'm going to trust you with my soul for eternity and with my life here and now. And you're not perfect, but you're leaning and you're taking steps. The Bible says that that's you. You are rich. You are blessed. You are abundantly favored. And then God looks at us and he says, now what are you going to do with that? So at Christmas Eve, Eve, we throw wide doors and we say to people, why don't you come? Your kids are going to love it. Candlelight Christmas family service. And this year, we've put together a program for kids that is going to be spectacular. We're not all going to be in one room. Your kids are going to have the option, if you would like for them to, to take their friends into another room and receive a program designed specifically for them. They're going to love. We're hoping to hook the, the, the bait into the mouths of, of your guests deep and, and you know, grab hold of them all the way. And they're going to love the program on Christmas Eve and beg their parents to bring them back to that church where they had so much fun. And they're going to hear about Christmas in a powerful way. Why, why would we do that? Why would we take such effort? We're going to do three services, five, seven, nine o'clock. Why would we go to that kind of effort? It would be much easier this year to kind of put that on hold. I'll tell you why. Because at the core of our church is the belief that God has blessed us by expending to us grace and favor. And we want to be rich with that. And so out of the overflow of what he's given us, we're going to open wide our doors so that everybody we know has an opportunity to hear the gospel in simple and clear language. And everybody has an opportunity to think about what the beginning of the good news looks like. And not just the beginning, what are the implications of this Christmas in their lives? And so while we're in the middle of building and dealing with building inspectors and air conditioning and carpeting, and it would be real easy to be a little bit, you know, sad and frustrated. Let me just tell you something. Four Corners, we are rich. We're rich in part because of your attitude through this entire building program. I feel richly blessed. We're rich because we have an incredible staff. 
The team that God has allowed me to work with, they are my brothers and sisters in arms. I would take any hill with these men and women. If God told us to, I would storm the gates of hell with water pistols. That's how confident I am in this team. They will work hard and pray hard and for the most part keep great attitudes. And when they have bad attitudes, they know to go sulk by themselves. They're great team members. It's phenomenal. We are blessed. And God has positioned us uniquely in this community, northern Cincinnati, to reach into families and extended families. Aunts and uncles come to this place and get equipped on how to engage their nieces and nephews. And grandparents come and they talk about what they want for their grandkids. And parents come and they talk about how to deal with their adult kids and their teen kids and their elementary kids. What if this Christmas you and I got real intentional to invite one person to hear the Christmas story this Christmas Eve Eve? So here's a couple practical things we're going to do. Christmas Eve Eve, big deal. December 23, Sunday night, 579. We won't have a Sunday morning service. All of our weight will go there, and we'll sing Christmas carols, and we'll preach the gospel, and there'll be a Santa Claus, and there'll be a lot of Jesus. There might be three or four Santa Clauses. A couple of folks around here kind of look like him, and it's kind of fun. So who knows? Who knows? I'm going to play an elf. I won't be dressed up. I just have the stature. It's It's okay. Somebody asked me why I don't grow a beard. It's very simple. You don't grow a beard at my statue at Christmas. People are like, where do you work? What store? Are you an elf? It's very embarrassing. We're going to leverage everything we have for the gospel because we're rich. And on Christmas Eve Eve, we're going to take up an offering. And we're going to bless Four Corners India to build and finish that old lady's home. And we're going to send a big portion of that money to the Smoky Mountain Children's Home to continue to bless that organization. And this summer, we'll go back. I think I have two pictures of the Smoky Mountain Children's Home behind me of our work there last summer. And we're going to, the third piece of the pie, we're going to take some of the money and we're going to invest right into our own kids' ministry. I have a heart for kids. It could be because I'm a parent. It could be because that's God's call on our church. But we're going to bless kids and people that are less fortunate, people who need to hear the message of the gospel and hear it from people that are friendly and smiling and will love them. That's what we're going to do. So I'm going to ask you to pray and rally your kids around what you guys could do. And I know some of you have given so much. So if you can't, hey, you do what you want. You don't need to answer to me about your giving. You answer to God and God alone on that. And we're good. We're good. This is your church, whether you give or not. That's fine. What if, what if you leveraged just a little bit of the influence you have with your family and you guys brought a token gift that said, we'd love to do more, but we're going to give this to India and to the Children's Home in the Smoky Mountains and to Four Corners Kids Ministry. We want to see people experience the beginning of the story this holiday season. And we want that story to write large in their life for the rest of their life, not just here, but for eternity. I think it can make all the difference in the world. Am I bummed that we're not in our new building today? Yep, but when I decided not to work till midnight last night because we weren't trying to get in, and I went home and I spent time with my family and I had time to reflect, it's like God reminded me just how blessed we are and how we stand poised to bless this community, not because we are so great, but because we are blessed. And that's exactly what we're gonna do. And in one regard, this holiday season for us, in one sense, will be the beginning of a new chapter, the beginning of good news And I want you to be a part of it. I want you to take joy in it, large and small. One dollar to ten thousand dollars, whatever you can do. 
one minute to 35 hours a week, whatever it is you can give, one emotionally draining conversation to bless and affirm somebody else or a thousand of them, one expenditure of grace because you've been given grace. Let's take some next steps together as a congregation about how we're going to do that. I ask you to consider this morning what if you personally believed that you were favored, that God came to you and said, fear not. Around here, our next step A is always the core of the core, beginning a relationship with Jesus. If you'd like to do that today, the creator of the universe who gave his life for you, who says you don't have to trade in all of your doubts, you just have to put your confidence in me instead of yourself. If you'd like to do that, you can check the box, and we'll shoot you some information electronically and in the mail that simply says, here's what a relationship with Jesus looks like. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and you can put your faith and trust in Jesus. The Bible says it this way, that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you can be saved. You can begin a new life. The beginning of the good news begins in your life then. If you want to do that, check next box A, and then put the card in the offering bucket when it comes by in just a few moments. The next step B, if you'd like to get baptized, we'll coordinate that with you. You can go public with your faith and let people know you're not ashamed of the gospel because you believe it's the power of God for salvation. You can go public with your faith. Next step C, I bet there might be a few people in the room that this applies to, that you're struggling with believing that Christmas really is for you and that you're favored. This staff and I, we're praying for you about that. We want you to grab hold of the truth that you are favored by God and that your circumstances are not the entire story. There was a good news beginning for you that isn't done yet. Check that box and let us pray for you this week. Next step, D. I'm going to find a way to be rich this Christmas. I don't know how you need to do it. Maybe it's giving in our Christmas Eve service to bless India and Smoky Mountains and our own kids' ministry. Maybe it's some other way. Maybe there's a family next door or a family member. Find a way to rally around being rich this holiday season. And out of the abundance God's blessed you with, wherever you can find it, dispense it, give it to others graciously. And the next step B, I'm going to invite at least one person to the Christmas Eve Eve service. Make an internal investment. It's going to be crazy good. You're going to love this. Let's pray about these things right now. Lord Jesus, God, I want to thank you. <laughs> I want to thank you that it's true. A building is not a church. The church is the called people of God who've received your goodness into our lives. And you have commissioned us with an incredible mission to give out of the abundance that we've been given with, to share good news, to bless others even as we've been blessed. So God, as we begin to turn our attention towards Christmas and we celebrate the gift of the world in Jesus, I pray, God, that you would help us to know that we are favored. That you would help us to be rich in good deeds. That, God, you would help us to invest in reaching others with your message. God, thank you for this church, for how they bless me, how they encourage me, how they lift me up. And, God, as we make this transition, we want it all for you and for your glory. I pray it in the name of Jesus, the strong Son of God. Amen. Amen.